The reading of the scripture today will be from Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, and thank you to uh, Pastor John for reading that. Um, We talked a little bit about, as we go through this uh, book of Genesis, there's going to be huge, huge sections um, of Scripture that we're going through, and so there's a reading plan uh, that's been created. Um, I don't know if we printed that yet, but if not, we will be soon, and we can make it available on Facebook, uh, Institute, and Twittergram pages, Um, and... uh, Abby will be doing like a, a, a daily uh, Snapchat of the reading as well. Uh, just kidding. But we will get that reading plan out to you so that you can read along. Um, th- this is a great example today, right? We're going to basically read the entire second chapter of Genesis. So um, we are not going to exhaust this passage. Even more, I would suggest that it may not even break a sweat today. Uh, so I would encourage you to go back and read more, uh, both in Genesis 2 and ahead, where we'll we'll be next week. Um, I've been richly enjoying the book. In fact, yesterday, as it turns out, I looked in my Facebook, or excuse me, Facebook, everything's Facebook. I looked in my phone health app, and it said I walked 23,000 steps yesterday, which is wild because my daily average is like 1,500, sadly. Uh, My commute is from the refrigerator to my desk. Um, but yesterday I was working in my yard, I was tilling the land, and uh, ever reminded that since the fall, things have been different when working the land, right? Part of the, uh, part of the curse was it no longer yield under your hands. I, must, I wonder what was, what was Adam's tending work like before the, before the fall? It must have been amazing. Probably wouldn't have taken 23,000 steps to work on grass. Last week, um, Pastor John took us through the, the creative narrative in Genesis chapter 1, and peeking a little bit into the second chapter, uh, verses 1 through 3. And in doing so, he talked about God taking non-life, meaning nothingness, complete blank. What does that mean? Don't know. But nothing existed until God spoke it into creation. And he talked about the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17, Referencing, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And so I hope for all of us in the room, I hope that describes us. I hope we're found this morning as a new creation in Christ, meaning post the day of your birth. Because 
as I've heard it joked before, uh, God has children and no grandchildren. Grandmama was a believer. That does not mean that you are by extension covered by her grace. I hope 2 Corinthians 5.17 describes you. Anyone is in Christ. He is a new creation. The old has passed away and behold the new has come. When that happens, as Pastor John said last week, you become new creation. You're like the tree described by Psalm planted by water. And so when God, the hound of heaven, has gripped you, then you become enemy number one of Satan. Satan, the enemy of man and the accuser, the great accuser. I want you to be encouraged if you're a believer this morning by Luke chapter 22, verses 31 and 32. It'll come up on the screen. If you want to flip there, I love this passage. Luke chapter 22, verses 31 and 32. This is Jesus is talking to Simon. Jesus is encouraging Simon in this this moment. I could imagine. Can you imagine how... I was going to say puffed up, but that has negative connotations. Could you imagine how wonderful it would feel to hear this from Christ? Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you. Boy, that's odd. And it's a great reminder, as we are reminded in Job as well, that Satan is, is God's devil. I believe is how Luther described it. He's on a leash. Meaning he can go as far as the leash is allowed, but no further. And so in the book of Job, we see that Job is constrained to first touch anything except for Job's health. And so he didn't. And when God allowed him to go further, then he did. The devil is God's devil. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. There's a lot going on there, but know that the same advocate that Simon had in Christ, we have in Christ. 1 John 2, 1 and 2 speaks of that. And maybe you're wondering, what does any of this have to do with Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 25? And so I want, in a moment, we'll, we'll glance at that quickly, but I want us to reflect together I want us to be encouraged to be people who study the word very, very deeply and richly. And ultimately, I hope that you're encouraged by our study today in Genesis chapter 2. And that it excites you to explore the rich word of God unswayed by claims against Scripture. I say again, unswayed by claims against Scripture. We should be firmly rooted and convicted in what Scripture is and excited to plumb its depths. I think sometimes as believers, we become unsatisfied by the Word and we look to other things. And ultimately, that leads us to the world. We become unsatisfied by the Word itself. And so we need the Word and science. We need the Word and culture. We need a way to describe to the culture that the way that they see things also fits into the narrative of Scripture. And that's a mistake. Scripture is authority for all things. So let's look at verses 4 through 9 first, kind of overlapping what what Pastor John just read. Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 4. 
These are the generations of the heaven and the earth when they were created. And the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land. And there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils and the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. We'll keep going through 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. But of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, we just studied Genesis chapter 1 last week. And I don't know how many times you've read through a Bible in the year plan, but if you have, you've probably made it through the book of Genesis. You might have gotten stuck somewhere in the desert, in the middle of a, of a genealogy where someone begat someone and you closed the thing frustrated and just took the picture as though you had done your Bible study reading it, posted it to Facebook next to your cup of coffee, and moved along. But chapter 1 and chapter 2 seem to tell the same story, but differently. Did you notice that? It talks about creation's order and maybe different steps. When you think back to last week in our study in, in Genesis 1-1 through 2-3, we see that the the narrative there goes from the creation of a formless earth through six days of creation. And in chapter 2 and verse 3, the seventh day, which was rest. So if you look again at verses 4 through 9, we see that these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. They were created and the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. There was no bush of the field yet in the land, no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. And then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put a man whom he had formed. And out of the garden the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now there's a lot. <laughs> there's a lot that was just mentioned there. Note it talks about there was no rain yet. We're pre-flood. Everything came up from the ground and just watered the plants. Note that he didn't say the young man Adam, our little baby Adam, God didn't create an infant and like raise him and bottle feed him and he laid around in the garden. Right? God made him an adult man. And he put trees in the garden. There was a tree of knowledge of good and evil. 
And then there was another tree. And you can study these trees and follow the line with Christ who would be hung on a tree and be cursed. And there's a lot of interesting things to study in these passages. As I said, this passage won't even break a sweat this morning. There's so much to study when you go back. This word is rich and so much more unsatisfying than the blind gropings in the dark of the world around us who tells us a constantly evolving truth. We're still having a hard time landing on whether the egg and its yolk are healthy, yet we would take our truth from the people who can't decide. There's a man named Francis Schaeffer wrote a book called Genesis, Space, and Time. And he has an amazing quote in this book, and I find it helpful. First, it's offensive. It's, it's like grapefruit. It takes some time before you like it. Right? Someone tells you it's good and you eat it and you declare to them it's horrible and they insist that it's good and you know that it's not, but you keep eating it and then it becomes good over time. So too is this statement. He says, what is the least that we must make of Genesis 1 through 11 in order to make the rest of the Bible coherent and true? What is the least that we must make of Genesis 1 through 11 in order for the rest of the Bible to be coherent and true. Isn't that interesting? It's a, it, it's a reduction in its parts. What is the least? Everybody tries to go to, what is the most I can make Genesis do? Well, what, what if in Genesis 1-1, the earth was formless and void, void, and then you know God made things be, and then gap, eight trillion years, and all kinds of things happened, and all kinds of crazy people were created, and this is where the Nephilim came from, and, and, and this is why we can count tree rings and know how old the earth is, it's because of this gap. Here's the problem. It's not there. So Schaefer's question asks, what is the least that I can make of Genesis 1 through 11 in order for the rest of the Bible to hold together? And that encourages us from, from chasing rabbit trails that aren't present. And I will tell you that there is an absolute danger in doing that. Maybe you've ever heard of a concept called proof texting before. That's when you want something to be true and you find a single verse hidden away in some corner, generally in a book that's really hard to describe. And you say, oh, see, right there it says this. But the good thing is, as, as Christians who have a lot of history, we have uh, tools that allow us to know how to understand what the Word of God is because we say it is inerrant, it is without error uh, in matters of doctrine. And so we know that we can go here to answer any question. We should never be afraid of addressing a question from Scripture. If God intends for it to be answered, it will be answered. In fact, we, we, we remind ourselves so often here, it's all we need for life, for proof, doctrine, training in righteousness is in these 66 books of Scripture. And so Schaefer asks, what is the least we must make of Genesis 1 through 11 in order for the rest of the Bible to be coherent and true? I think at first that feels really bad because you're like, well, why would I try to make the least of Scripture? You know, it's not asking us to reduce Scripture down to something it is not. It is asking us to say, what does it boldly and solidly assert must be true? Um, if you understand what your Scripture is, then you treat it vastly differently. We're not always trying to understand if it's right according to what scientists say. So if you were to look at Genesis 1.1, it reads, In the beginning, God created the heavens and 
the earth. So the question for, for all of us is, is that true? Do you believe that? Do you solidly believe that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth? Because if you do, then everything from that point is subservient to the God who created the heavens and the earth. You'll stop chasing your tail, trying to justify the scriptures with what people are saying, and you'll understand, I feel so comfortable speaking about truth from these 66 books. And now, I don't need to chase all kinds of interesting rabbit trails. I'm vastly more interested in understanding what does the word say, this inexhaustible, rich word that plums between the division of bone and marrow, soul and spirit, this God who knows me exhaustively, who provided all I need to know here is so much more interesting and rich than any other subject I could follow. Even if I go to the store of Lifeway and I get to the checkout counter and I buy my scripture mints and, and Beth Moore's most recent book, I would vastly prefer that we read this than any of those pieces of trudge. 2 Peter 1.3 Again, when you understand what the scripture is, you can lean on and rely against what the Scripture says. Unless you understand that the Scripture is the very infallible, inerrant Word of God, you can't trust anything it says. You have to determine whether it's true first. 2 Peter 1.3 His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who is called who has called us into his own glory and excellence his divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who is called who has called us to his own glory and excellence or 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17 again speaking about scripture speaking about the word all Scripture. Which Scripture? All of it. So as long as you know what Scripture is, then you can know all of this is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. What does that mean when you're talking to your brothers and sisters from among the body and, and you're, you're looking for some help on something? They should be orienting you towards Scripture. It's profitable for teaching and for reproof and for correction and for training and righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So what else do you need to be equipped for some good work? Simply the Word of God. Nothing more. It rightly understood is the full equipping that we need for every potential good work. I had a friend ask one time, hey, uh, thinking about church planning stuff, what's a good book to read? <laughs> this, this question concerns me, man. Uh, I mean, the Bible's good, Acts is good, Philippians is good, any of the... No, 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 like, like something that's going to actually help me. Oh, it's so... I mean, it's funny, but my gosh, that's so hurtful. It's a great description of the world today. 
something that's going to actually help me. Um, there, there, there's, you know, we're in this immediate kind of a culture, right? Um, you put something in the microwave, you do the same thing I do. You pop the door open with like five to one seconds left. You can't wait till the thing beeps. You need it now, right? I can't even wait for the television to bring up what I want to watch. I need it now. I need it on Netflix. I need Netflix to tell me what I should think about things in the world around me. I say that while I'm like, what seems like it must be months deep into uh, another series of ridiculousness. We have to be cautious about that with Scripture, though, right? Our tendency to want the immediate answer right now, our tendency is to go to Google and ask Google what the Bible says as opposed to opening it. Our tendency is to say, well, what does this teacher or that teacher say on this subject as opposed to reading our Scriptures? I mean, if we believe that the Holy Spirit of God lives in us, we could read this word and understand it. Um, that's why Paul celebrated the Bereans. There are so many teachers out there. If you have itching ears, you can collect for yourself a whole host of them. You can have a TV show streaming in. You can go to any, you know, I always know what kind of, what kind of, uh, <laughs> there's something about, like, there's this, I'm going to build a format of these kinds of websites, right, that um, they use a lot of red font, right, usually like some Times or some Arial, right, and they're telling you all kinds of things that sound new and weird, but they're intriguing and interesting, usually packed full of what I would describe as, you know, wretched, deplorable, godless doctrine. Um, I remember one one time, uh, uh, someone I cared about got really into this one that talks about um, um, the, the tree in the garden. The reason that it looked good to the eye is because it was describing Satan and that Eve eating from the apple means she slept together with Satan and this became the fall. So she, listen, you need to stop exploring that stuff. Read what the word says. It says none of these things. This is why we need to be satisfied by the word itself. And we need to go to the word to see whether things are so. It's not designed in a way to be complicated. It's designed in human language. It's designed to be understood by us. This is, there's no mystical truth that's hidden in here. There's no Gnosticism. There's no hidden knowledge. It's all right there for us to know. Look at the way that the Bible describes people. It's so accurate and real. Read the book of First and Second Samuel. It describes people so wonderfully. You know, if you were to write a book to try to control people and make it look like a religious text, which is what so many people would say, it would look nothing like this. Because all the heroes of the faith were miserable wretches who lived destroyed, messed up lives so that we would not pedestal them. Also because it's just an accurate reflection of what it means to be a person. Um, I'm big into math. I used to be a janitor at a college in Massachusetts. Give me some room. I'm falling. Um, if you were to put together a math problem, right, around uh, people that seek after God, okay, Scripture helps you outline this math problem. None seeks after God. No, not one. Because what do we naturally seek after? We naturally seek after our own benefit. Um, like I said, I'm in the middle of this really embarrassing show that I don't want to admit on Netflix. It's just like this constant spy thing that gets worse and worse with every single episode. I even forget the name of it. It's like Deep Point or Black Water. I don't know, something cool. Um, and uh, there was this, this you know, again, I'm, I'm ashamed to be me right now, but there was an episode last night that I was watching through where like uh, th this, this cult group had decided to release a biological agent on all of humanity 
And the FBI agent was squaring off with this guy that had a bag full of this agent. Like I said, I feel dumber by the moment describing this. And you know, she's faced with this decision to either shoot him, and then he drops the bag, and it you know kills everybody but her first, um, or kind of let him go. And he's like, "See, you're like everybody else. You you know, self preservation. You're not going to shoot me because you don't want to die." There's a lot of truth in that. Most of the things that we do from within ourselves are for our own benefit. Um, I saw I saw someone's uh, Facebook profile, or or it might have been a, uh, a Twitter profile the other day. It made me laugh. Like I legitimately just kind of laughed out loud. I think I was going to bed. You know, you do the last minute like squint at the screen before you go to sleep. I was pulling one of those and I saw the person's profile and it said, "Lover unconditionally." And I just laughed. I'm like, "Oh my gosh, that's so insane." I hope you don't actually think that's true. Like people don't love unconditionally, <laughs> right? <laughs> you find that out like in year one of your marriage, generally, right? You're like. Uh, Oh, we, we, you know, we're getting married because we're star-crossed lovers, and this is going to be great, and our marriage is going to be different than everyone else's. And then you walk into your bedroom, and you're like, why did you leave your dirty clothes on the floor? And then you, you go to the kitchen the next morning. You know, this is day one. You go to the kitchen the next morning, and you look, and the, 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 the sink has become a holding place for dirty dishes with, like, water and a little bit of faded bubbles and some oil surfacing to the top. And, and a little bit of more rage bubbles up in your blood and, and you're rinsing this thing and you're like, as if a sink magically cleans things out of these pots, you know? And then all of a sudden, everything really annoys you. And now you're on day five and you're really starting to get frustrated. And that person says something to you and you pop off with something and, and, and then that person cries and now it's your fault that they're crying. And you've got this swarming mess of a relationship. This is what it is to be a person. This is what happens when you take two sinners and put them under the same roof and say the two become one flesh. And through a process of time and years, you learn, you become conformed more and more to Christ's image as you both learn to die to yourselves. This is Christian marriage. And so none seeks after God. All seek after our own benefit. Um, we learned in scriptures that we loved darkness more than light. Love the darkness more than we love the light. We're just bent towards it. And so it's so important that we get this picture of creation. God created one time in all things that existed. There's no net new material being added to the world. All the water that you drank today existed previously, which, spoiler alert, means it's been recycled. God is not creating new water for you. It's the same water that's always been here. And ever since that moment of creation, everything has been winding down because we read in the scriptures that creation groans under the pains of the fall. And so we look forward to moving on from this life. Our beloved sister Sheila would have told you every day when you saw her, I cannot wait to rid myself of this body. And while we're sad not to have her, she does not share in our sadness at this moment. Newly bodied, newly tented, present with the Lord. What a blessing. That is the, our hope. That is what we look towards. Everything about this creation reminds us of the fall, reminds us of the sickness that we live within, and encourages us to grow more and more into Christ's image, to, to, to grow beyond ourselves. So the world would tell us that we just need to make ourselves a little bit better. The scriptures would tell us that we need to be conformed more into Christ's image. 
We don't need to pull ourselves up by our bootstrap. Believers don't walk around with our nose in the air thinking we're better than anyone. In fact, we're only believers because we think we're horrible, wretched, deplorable worms who needed the God-man himself to be torturously murdered to absorb the full wrath of God for our own beliefs and thoughts. If your nose is high in the air because Jesus had to be torturously murdered for your sin, think twice. That's who we are. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. Here to encourage. Be positive and encouraging. You know? It's like, Caleb, I want to hear stories about some silly little thing your puppy did. So a shortcut to a bit of an answer as to why is this second chapter of Genesis a little bit different. Um, I've heard it said from people a lot of times, in fact, I think this is kind of like a common understanding, is that uh, the scriptures have been handed from person to person, oral uh, tradition, have been whispered in one person's ear, and so then it's potentially corrupted. Or you have to make sure... Um, that you're understanding which part of scripture that you're reading, or you have to, you, you, you really have to have some kind of knowledge to know how reliable this is because it's been passed on from person to person, and so it certainly can't be true. The problem with that is the reality of the situation. When, when you look at how this is borne out over time, first of all, you have to remember that Genesis 1 1 says, In the beginning, the earth was formless and void, and then God created everything. So if that is true, we would anticipate that he could also preserve the transmission of his singular way of speaking towards us. And that's true of scripture. And we see a lot of evidence for that. We see entire sects and groups of people who were raised, created, and trained to be able to accurately pass this information along. We have a book of Genesis, which is the you know, earliest book in terms of chronology of scripture that's written brilliantly. You think about the kind of mind that would have needed to write this. Uh, Genesis chapter 1's creation, perhaps you could say, is more poetic picture of the creation story. It also presents God to us in a way that we understand him as the creator being. And then chapter 2 and verse 4 steps in and gives a recapitulation or a second telling of this that lets us see God as a covenant-giving God. He zooms in a little bit on the creation of, of humanity, of people, of the crown of creation, and shows himself to be involved, engaged, and caring about us. So perhaps you've heard people say, oh, well, the, the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath and anger, and the God of the New Testament is a God of love. Write that down on a piece of paper, throw it out the window, because it's trash. God is consistent. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And he's always been a God of love. He has always been about mercy and grace, but is unbending and unwielding with his character. And so there's always been a way by his grace to, to be made right with him, even if that way was temporary until the fullness of his plan played out on Jesus. And that is the reality. And so the two tellings of the book of Genesis creation story gives us a fuller picture of who God is. And we'll see little hints towards that end as we read. Um, and it's interesting with, with translations, I want us all to understand that translations are fantastic. They're marvelous works that people have put so much energy into and people whose mind are so much sharper than my own to understand the nuances of language. And if you want to understand the amount of work that goes into that, I want you to go read translator notes. Um, UBS commentary is a really great one. 
uh, United Bible Scholars, I think it is. Um, and they will talk about, if you're doing a work in a new place who speaks about people in this way, here's how you'll want to tease this out in translation. Because the thing with language is, word-for-word word translation from one language to the other and one culture to the other does not work, right? And it seems like it should, but until you've spent a few moments in, in, in uh, looking at Spanish, and, and Bethany would tell you this, you, you can't just take something that's written in Spanish, translate every single word, string those words together, and come up with a coherent thought. It'll be all over the place. And that doesn't work in English either. I mean, talk about a confusing language. English is a confusing language. You know, I might describe where I was in a building and say I was in a boardroom. And, and maybe a new English speaker would say, okay, sit down with the translation book and say boardroom. Okay, well, are you going to get out of that what you should if you're just doing a word-for-word -word translation? Probably not. You're probably going to, what about a pine cone? What's a pine cone? And so the way that we understand Scripture is by looking hard and diving deep. And the, the translators have done a lot of that work. And so that's where I think it's helpful at times to use varying translations to look across several and understand, well, what were they grappling with? And, and Genesis chapters 1 and 2 are helpful in that regard because a careful read of, of better translations helps with a little bit of, a, uh, of an issue here, perhaps. Um, the LSB, the ESV, the NIV, and Genesis 2.19 will all read, God had formed, meaning this has occurred, meaning we're not looking at chronology. We're talking about something, boop, but we're talking about something that had been created. So the order, it, this, this passage is not trying to describe the order of creation. This passage is zooming in on certain aspects of creation and giving you more information about those than you had before if it had not zoomed in. And the, the purpose behind that is, you know, to give you like a... Uh, a 50 cent term, we like to hand out those, uh, those 50 and 75 cent terms, um, is a, it's a, it's a pluperfect. The, the text uses a tense called pluperfect, which sounds fancy, right? But it means an action that was completed prior to some past point in time, had created. And why do I say that? If you have the, the King's English in front of you, um, it would not say had created, it would say, out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And so you lose a bit of the sense of the timeline. You lose the fact that God had already done this. And the writer in Genesis chapter two is describing something that has already happened. So it's not chronological. What we have is a, a zooming in on some of the days to get really specific details about what was occurring. If you read Genesis 1's creation of the uh, uh, account of creation and the, the creation of man, uh, you wouldn't know that God formed him out of the dust of the ground and breathed life into his nostrils. You would perhaps miss some of the tie-in with ashes to ashes, dust to dust. You wouldn't understand when the scriptures say, God is aware that man is but dust. These things are for us to understand. When you understand that you are an animated pile of dirt, it's really helpful because, you know, when you, you, you look at some of the things that Paul wrestles with, oh, wicked man that I am, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak because the flesh is dirt. You're just mud. You're a mud creature. <laughs> and we think of ourselves sometimes more highly than we ought. Yes, God values us. Yes, God loves us exceedingly. Why? I don't know. I have no idea. That one, if you get that one, let me know. 
in the accounts contained within verses 26 and 28 of Genesis 1, we see that God said, let us make man in our image. So much hidden in Genesis, let us, who's he talking to? Who is this host of, of creation? And so if you struggle with the struggle with the concept of a trinity, you say the Bible never says trinity, I would agree. Tell me who is us. Let us make man in our image. What is, what is the image? Is it arms, right? Because uh, my Mormon friends would say that the, the, the scripture says that, that the span of God's hand is, is large, and so God has a hand. And so I would take my friend to the book of Psalms and say, oh, God desires to, to gather us like chicks under his wing. So God is some kind of an animated bird man. Except that we learn in the scriptures that there's this, this concept called the, the doctrine of simplicity. All of these truths about God, he's not shaped like us. So his image is something else. Uh, people have wrestled with that forever. Once you settle why God cares for us, in spite of the fact that none seek after him, no, not one, uh, then, and you describe that to me, thank you for, for settling that, I'll be glad. Then you can tell me, what is it, the image of God, the imago Dei? What does that mean? I don't know, but for some reason, in us, in people specifically, not your puppy or your sweet little kitty, but in human people, God made the crown of creation and stamped something about his image on us. We can grapple with that. We can say there's lots of different things that it is and probably is. Our capacity to love, our capacity to do all kinds of things that don't exist outside of people are probably part of the imago Dei, the, the image of God in people. And he let them have dominion over the fish, and the sea, and the birds, and the heaven, and the livestock. You can tell all of your friends at PETA about this verse. They can relax. They can stop pouring pig blood on fur coats and torturing people in the streets and just generally being weird. God gave dominion. That's why we don't extract a murder charge uh, for everyone who buys beef on a plastic tray. I remember talking to someone the other day. He was like, yeah, I just can't deal with deer hunting. It just seems so cruel as he was chewing a hamburger at the lunch table across from me. Over the livestock and over the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over everything living that moves on the earth. And I must say, we've done exceedingly well with populating the earth. It seems pretty full to me. There's still room to grow. Don't be fooled. If you've ever driven through Pennsylvania, you know that that's true. And so Genesis chapter 2 then zooms in a little bit on this creation. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7 says, Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Fascinating. Fascinating. 
So did he have a belly button? Because he wasn't born. Apparently he was, he was created into the, the size and shape of a full-grown man. God didn't make an infant with like an umbilical cord that creepily had to fall off. And maybe you do have to put rubbing alcohol on it. No, maybe rubbing alcohol is terrible and that's why everybody's belly button is weird. The science changes every week. I don't even know what you're supposed to do to a baby anymore. You put rubbing alcohol on that thing, what's the rule? No rubbing alcohol. Rubbing alcohol on the baby's about none of that. Nope. My poor five have all been tortured by rubbing alcohol on their belly button. Jeez. If I'd have only known. Genesis chapter 2, verses 19 through 25, we continue on a zoom in of the creation narrative that you could not have known from chapter 1. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Imagine the intellect to be able to do kingdom and phylum naming, to be able to separate all of the creatures, to be able to divide them up into their type and to their kind. If I had done it, we'd have been in trouble. You'd have had crossover between, between peanuts and, and, and pineapples. You wouldn't have been able to know if, if a deer and a horse were related. I still can't understand these things. But somehow, Adam was able to do this, naming and division. And whatever the man called every living creature was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was found no helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. He was incomplete. Earth was incomplete with just a dude. Right? Not to mention it could never have continued in this way. If there was no death, it'd just be a super old Adam doing weird stuff. And so God caused this thing to happen. God is stepping back into creation to make this thing occur. He caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. We're going to see the first surgery. Some of you are fresh off surgery. I bet yours was not as good as this one. A deep sleep to fall upon the man. And then the man said, excuse me. While he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with the flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman. And he brought her to the man. And the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Pause on that for a moment. So what does this mean? Uh, that, that we are... We are equal elements of God's creation, both valued with the absolute same value, same substance, same creator, same purpose to bring God glory and life. And these two together are supposed to specifically and expressly bring God even more glory than either one would have alone. Now, does that mean to the one who's called to a life of singleness that you bring in God less glory? Absolutely not. Uh, Paul talks about a call to single life, and that is fantastic. 
But there was something that God was doing here in this moment, setting into order. And we're going to see that there's a lot of things according to timeline that are happening in very different ways. God will speak to these people in ways that don't make sense for them in this moment. Verse 24, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Just like the TV show. Uh, naked and alone. You know the one time out? Super weird. Um, anyway, that was a side note. That was free. So you've got this creation and, and you've got this little bit of commentary. I mean, how many people are on earth at this point? It's a very easy census. The answer is two. And we hear in this moment that because this is true, man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So there, there's, there's something about this cleaving. There's something about this togetherness. And so that means in a, in, a, in, a, in a Christian marriage, when something is going on, you know, you don't take what's going on in that marriage and go to your, your mother-in-law and say, hey, my husband is doing this thing, or, or vice versa. You don't go to your, your mom and say, hey, my wife is doing this thing. You are one flesh. You're new. You talk to one another. You work through this together. You take it before the Lord. And don't miss the fact that this is something that God is doing in bringing these two people together, this man and this woman. He has created this environment. He has decided that this is something that's going to exist to bring him glory. But who were the mother and father of Adam and Eve that they were to? God is pushing into the future, casting into the future how all of life will work. And nothing is different. Everything is still the same. Remember, there is nothing new under the sun. We'll come to learn that later. Nothing new under the sun. And so God here, we're zooming in on these days of creation because we're coming to understand God is a covenantal God, a God who pushes things into covenant. Oftentimes, he's covenanting with us as both the, the, the guarantor and the one that will receive penalty for a broken. And we know that God is not like a man that he should lie. So his side is always going to be upheld. And we'll see that now. So we talked about translations and how translators grapple to describe things in different ways. Sometimes you look in your Bible, if you look at the very beginning, there's something probably called translator's notes. It will talk to you about capital L, Lord, uh, all caps, Lord, God. What are the words behind that? What is trying to be described? Because the translators are carrying forward different concepts. In Genesis 1, we see God as Elohim. Elohim is God in Genesis 1. It's talking about God who's big and powerful and creator. That's the, the, con, that's the, the, the feeling that this invokes. It's the feeling that this carries. It's a God that steps into a world that's formless and void and says, let there be, and he creates. Let there be, and he creates. With no existing material, God is creating afresh. But perhaps you'll notice in Genesis 2.4, it changes it's no longer God. Now it's Lord God. So not only do we have two accounts of the same creation with some differences between the two, God now has a different name. 
And there's a point the author is trying to draw our mind into something. We've said that we're zooming in and we get more information on the creation of man. And we see this interplay between God and man. We see that God cares. It's not like God's like a watchmaker and he winds up all of time and, and he just throws it on the table like a top to flop around and do whatever it wants. God has purpose for everything. And so in Genesis 2-4, we read, Lord God, this is Yahweh Elohim. It's the first mention of Yahweh Elohim in 2.4. Now, there is a, a, a scriptural principle that says that the, the instance of first mention is often the most clear. So if you're reading in the scripture and you see a concept, oftentimes you would ask, well, where was this first mentioned in scripture? Because scripture tends to build on itself. So the best way to understand the scripture is with more scripture. And so often scripture builds upon itself. And so it's important to see this first mention of Yahweh Elohim. And interestingly, Yahweh Elohim as a, as a combination of names is first found here in Genesis 2-4, but also constrained to a very few number of passages. Um, we don't see it again outside of Genesis, Genesis past chapter 3 and verse 24. And then in the Pentateuch, I think we don't see it again until Exodus 9 and 30. And so it's it's if we had the creation narrative with the big Elohim God, who's all-powerful. Now, when we come to God dealing personally and more directly with people, we see him as a covenantal, involved, loving, and caring Father God. And his name is used differently. And the author does that in a way that draws our mind in, where we're supposed to say, wait, that's different. Why is that different? We see that God is not some detached creator He's involved. He creates woman and he creates man. And he has special charge for them. And he says, uh, populate, fulfill the earth. Live together in this wonderful way that I've designed for you. It's a picture not just of creation, but as humanity as the crowning purpose of creation. And he's going to redeem this crowning purpose. I think that's why the angels look on us and they're curious. I think they're just like, why is he saving them? Like some number of us fell away and were irredeemable. He creates these clowns and everything they do is ridiculous. And he cares for them and he redeems it. He has a plan for their redemption. It's got to be mind boggling to have direct exposure to God and then see us and go. Yeah. Like some of you guys grew up in like the 70s and the 80s. Remember that show with Gosh, what was the guy's name? It's like Michael, and he had this weird, like, bearded friend, and there were angels that walked around the earth, like, in weird situations and helping people all the time. Like, even when we make angels, we make them seem ridiculous. What was that show? Touched by an angel. Yeah. They, I would love to watch an angel watch Touched by an Angel. They're like, dude, that is not the job. And so in these two accounts of Genesis 1 and 2, we see not an error. We see a massive help. Because it allows us to see this big Father God who creates and has this wonderful plan. And then it allows us to see that he has specific care and purpose for his creation. It's a wonderful picture. Either, either without the other would be less. And so we go back to Schaefer's question. What is the least that I have to know for the rest of the Bible to be true? Because I don't want to run off and get too creative. Because when I do that, we go strange places. I start saying Genesis 1-1, gap, billion years. Everything that's weird that I want to be true fits here. And then verse 2 picks up and whatever it is that God said, and I reconcile the two. Um, remember uh, 
one time I was bobbing along in the Sea of Galilee in a boat, and uh, somebody on that boat had like, you know, somebody had decided that we would do all these different devotional times. And um, this guy sticks with me to this day. I, I remember it um, because it was a bit of a Southern living redneck story. And those resonate with me really well. Um, and so the, the story goes like this. He had this job and his job was to take the trash out after supper. Um, and so if, if you're Southern, you know, supper can actually fit any meal, just like yonder it could be any direction. But his job was to take the trash out after everyone ate. And at dinner time, it was dark. And so, you know, he gets the trash and, and, he, and he goes outside and he carries the cans and then he turns around and he books it back to the house as fast as he can. And he said his dad was waiting for him inside. And he's like, dude, why did oh, dude, that's probably my addition, but uh, why did you run back like that? And he, he shared with his dad that he was scared. He was scared of the dark. He didn't know what was out there or what could be out there. And his dad said, but I can see you and I'll make sure nothing happens to you so you don't have to run back like that. And that was meaningful to me as somebody who grew up where country dark is a thing. Um, I know country dark. And I, I know actually exactly how he felt because my job at my grandparents' house was to feed Peanut. Now, if you've known me for very long, you know that my grandfather had a dog named Peanut. I came to realize in my later life that every single dog he had was named Peanut. And he really didn't care too much for these animals because they lived outside in this little house no matter what was going on. And all of them had the name Peanut. I think he thought it was funny. Uh, and so anyway, Peanut didn't eat real food. He didn't even be treated by like Old Roy or something of that nature, Peanut ate whatever we didn't want to eat. And so my job was to take all this food for Peanut, who, now that I think back, I think was like different breeds of dogs at different times, and, and feed this animal. And I would experience the same thing, because Peanut wasn't like right up against the house, right? He was out towards where the cows were in a barn that was full of creepy sounds and noises, and I would do the exact same thing, sprint back. And so in the same way that the young man was told that he didn't have to be terrified because the father could see him. I would say for us of scriptures, when we feel like we're not understanding how all of this comes together, it's a great opportunity to dive in further, meet together, talk through those things. Because ever since the beginning, the attack on people's faith has been, did God really say, or don't you think it's kind of stupid that the scriptures would present it in that way? And you start to kind of feel like, oh, well, maybe what I think is dumb. Right? Maybe it is dumb that God created everything in six days. Okay, that's kind of stupid. Except then you start to hear the answers that people have. Is that, well, two big planets crashed into each other, or two big rocks crashed into each other, and it caused an explosion. Well, where did thermodynamics come from? Why was there an explosion? What caused the spark? Were there all existing elements happened to be in this rock that one would hit the other and it would cause spark. And then there were gases that were flammable, which spin each other out in all kinds of other directions. And the rocks just kind of just went around until one of them had water on it because water exists. And that water then had some mud and there was a crystal in it and lightning hit and it hit the crystal. And then an amoeba came out with this floating foot. And over a million years, that amoeba became a baby that crawled out of the water. And all of the plants evolved at the exact same pace so that the thing that needed to eat it and needed the oxygen from it already had it. And then Earth never changed its distance from sun. It was always the perfect distance, not too cold, not too hot, didn't burn up, didn't freeze. It's all very perfect. And so, like I said, you go back to Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, there was nothing, and God created it. 
Now, I'm not asking for some simplistic understanding of just accepting stupidness, because I'll tell you right now that it's not what we have in Scripture. Scripture is incredible. And, and when you look at its transmission and its veracity, um, you, you have scriptures that have been handed around among people, retranslated and copied, whispered in people's ears, and everybody has a copy. You can't hide from it. Everybody has them. And then a little sheep herder throws a rock into a cave and says, wait a minute, that rock took forever to get to the bottom of the cave. I wonder what's in there. And they crawl in and they look around and, oh, it's the caves of Qumran, where a sect of believers used to live, where there's all of these scriptural manuscripts that you can go look at now, like P39, or P32, and they've all been under the ground and nobody's seen them. When you pull them out and the Catholic Church finally lets you look at them, they're almost entirely consistent with every existing copy that's been being passed around. Your scripture is something else. It is not just whispered in one person's ear to the next and surely full of errors. You take a copy of Homer's Iliad, it has more errors than 2,000 years of whispering in ears. That's because a sovereign creator God superseded that that text would come to you unfeathered. And so we don't have to worry about concerns where the world says, well, do you really think that God created in six days? Yes, I absolutely do. Now, people would tell you, well, you're going to be on the wrong side of science. I would say I would vastly prefer to be on God's side of science uh, because science has gone to pretty crazy places. In fact, as John likes for me to drop, I was recently in Brussels, and I was walking around in downtown Brussels. And I came across, I walk in, walk in, there's a shop window, and I look over, and it's a human head. Justin, if you'll put the picture of it up. It's not a real human head, so you can relax. Um, it was a skull that had drawings on it. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm in Brussels that used to be occupied by the Nazis for a huge period of time. Well, huge period of time. I mean, it, you know in the tight window when Hitler was in charge of things. Um, Brussels was overtaken and kept in this, if you could read it, would say it's, a, it's, it's about phrenology. Phrenology. Um, I think I have the definition of phrenology in here. I may not, but just know that it's smart scientists telling you that you can understand people by the angles of their skull. By where different kinds of thoughts come from in their brain. And if you would have said, God, I don't know if that's really what God says, they would have said, you are a moron. You haven't gone to school like I've gone to school. You haven't been educated like I'm educated. If someone's angle on their forehead is like that, it's because the frontal cortex is full of different kinds of thoughts that they don't know how to control. And so the Nazis thought this was a really great idea. Um, in fact, there's another picture, I think. Yeah, look at that. That's a, that, is a, that is a third right kind of a gauge to be able to check the angles of people's skulls so that you can effectively know how to treat them, meaning treat them as a person or not, what percentage of a man are you, or just to kind of kill them because they're of a non-Aryan race and you can tell by the angle of their skull, this is what science will do. I know it sounds like I'm, you know, being some kind of a crazy evangelical and I'm yelling at you, but I'm, I'm not. I want you to be safer in the word because there's something that everyone believes today that's totally true. And in a hundred years will be the most laughable thing ever. And people are clinging to it. People are accepting anything but God because of that thing that will be comedy in a hundred years. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. I pray for us, God, that your word be everything. Because, God, our life, as you've told us, is but a vapor. We're so short-lived. God, I'm so thankful that you are the sovereign God of creation that your word describes as having 
cast everything into existence that is. I'm so encouraged, God, that you give us your word so that we can know you and know you very well. And God, so that we would see that you are the author and the sustainer, that all things that can be known are found in you. God, I thank you that you've given us this word so that we can study you and we can know you, but most specifically, so that we can know that we are fallen, that we are sin-sick creatures who are in need of a Savior. And God, if there would be anyone in this room this morning or hearing this message from your word this morning who does not know you as Savior and Lord, I pray, God, that they would submit their will to you. Give up everything that is holding them back from seeing your grace in Christ and and, and owning it, God. I pray that you would remove those obstacles of pride from them and that they would become yours and that we would become one together. Thank you, God, for your word and your grace and your mercy in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.